Well, there you have another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. This is Navy Captain Mark Black, 30-year veteran of the United States Navy. He has been um, instrumental as the 12th superintendent of the Fishburn Military School in Waynesboro, Virginia. I met him and members of his staff last week while on a trip to that area in the Shenandoah Valley. And I got to tell you, I was very, very impressed with the bearing and the uh, etiquette and the manners of the young men who attend this school. It's nice to hear the yes sirs and the no sirs and the yes ma'ams and the no ma'ams. And it gave me uh, great confidence that there's still great things happening in America, despite some of the things we read and see that are out there. This is Navy Captain Mark Black. And thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night You were born to fight You gotta light them up My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Our guest for this episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio Audio Medicine is Navy Captain Mark Black. Mark graduated with, with distinction with a Bachelor of Arts degree in economics. He would later go on to get his master's degree. He can tell us a little bit about that. But he was commissioned in the United States Navy. Mark served an outstanding career for 30 years in various positions of leadership and command in various places around the world. Captain Black was a distinguished naval flight officer assigned to the F-14 Tomcat community, which is where he primarily served throughout his distinguished career. Some of the squadrons he served with include VF-124 Gunfighters, VF-51 Screaming Eagles, VF-101 Grim Reapers, VF-41 Black Aces, and the Naval Strike and Air Warfare Center. He is a graduate of the Navy Fighter Weapons School, known to the world as Top Gun, which is the best of the best. Captain Black was the strike lead designated to direct numerous aircraft in, in hostile country with three different carrier wings, not one, but three. Mark has led squadrons of, of fighter aircraft, which include F-14s, F, F and A-18Fs, and F-35s. Captain Black was assigned to lead all naval personnel in Afghanistan as the Afghanistan officer in charge. And for those in the military, that's the OIC, but not just for a small area, for a large area of operations. That's pretty significant. Very honored to have him tell us more about that. Currently, Captain Black, and this is where I met Captain Black. We can talk about that when we get to it, but I was so impressed with what he's doing up in Waynesboro, Virginia at the Fishburn Military School. He is, in fact, the 12th superintendent of the Fishburn Military School, which has been around since before the 1900s. It's an outstanding program, what they're doing up there. I got to tell you, when we get to that part of the story, I'll let Mark tell us more about it. Now, what's interesting about Captain Black, even though he's this distinguished Navy pilot, both of his sons, and he is married, both of his sons joined the United States Army. 
which is kind of cool. I like that. <laughs> One of them is an active duty soldier with the 75th Ranger Regiment. He doesn't just have the tab. He's assigned to the regiment. That's pretty neat. Those guys are outstanding. His other son is an intelligence analyst and an EOD technician with the West Virginia National Guard. I have to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that I am humbled and honored to have Captain Black with us here today on Straight Out of Combat Radio. And just to let everybody know, his wife is a Floridian, and I like that too. So welcome, Captain Black, to our show. Thank you, John. I appreciate very much the opportunity to speak with you today. Thank you, sir. And I, I you know, I, I, I joked around a little bit about, uh, you know, how I met you and which was just last week, but, and we will get to the Fishburne Military School, but I got to let people know, and I, and I let you know just a few minutes ago, how refreshing it is to see the young men that you're helping to train with such bearing and etiquette and manners. I'm telling you, I was beginning to think that was a lost art here in the United States of America. And you have you made my wife and me proud to see that. And uh, we just thank your staff up there and thank you for that. Tell us a little bit about growing up in West Virginia and how you made it to VMI. And, you know, if there was military in your background, who your mentors were, tell us about that, Captain Black. So I grew up in, uh, I was born in Huntington, grew up in Milton. Milton is uh, approximately about halfway between Huntington and Charleston, which other than Wheeling, West Virginia, is the two biggest uh, metropolitan centers of the state. Now, uh, realize metropolitan center in West Virginia is very much different than most states. Uh, I think the population of uh, Huntington's 45,000 and the population of Charleston's 50,000, uh, uh, those wouldn't even constitute as suburbs in most areas. But anyway, uh, the that's where I actually was located. So a small school, um, really the family, uh, I'd had some family members in the military, but uh, they didn't necessarily, um, I mean, I would not consider us a military family. My father specifically was not in the military and uh, was very involved in athletics uh, and in particular uh, football was what I would consider my primary sport. Uh, and I did well, gained some notoriety that way and uh, started getting recruited and frankly, probably had a greater appreciation for my athletic prowess than what I should have. And uh, I had a number of small schools come to me. Now, for whatever reason, I knew I wanted to go into the military. Uh, that was my aspiration. I wanted to go to ROTC. And um, as these little schools came and spoke with me, uh, most none of them had ROTC. And I would just say, hey, I'm, I'm not really interested. When the big schools started to come, where, which I thought that they were more, um, I was more akin to going to one of them because that's uh, that's where my capabilities lied. I knew I was in trouble when the third one came up to me and said the exact same thing. And that was, you're not as big as we thought you were, which uh, trying to get a football scholarship, uh, I knew I was in trouble because I didn't really have the money to do that. And Lo and behold, VMI showed up, said, hey, we don't have any football money, but you've got good grades. If you agree to come play football, we'll make sure you get this academic scholarship. And uh, I said, I'm interested in doing that. I can remember very vividly because I was actually at basketball practice when this conversation occurred. The football coach that spoke with me, I mean, there were 
there were two, actually three coaches there at the time. And uh, one of them was a VMI graduate. He was the one that did most of the talking. And he said, so what would you like to take a visit? And I said, no, sir. I wish you know, they kind of shrugged their shoulders. I said, I, I just want to know where to assign. And he said, he kind of gave me a pause signal. He goes, now, listen, this place is not like any other you've probably contemplated. And I highly recommend that you come over and take a visit to this place before you make any type of commitment. And I said, you know, coach, I appreciate that, um, that guidance. And I think it, in most cases it would be wise, but uh, I'm either coming to VMI or I'm going to boot camp. I don't figure that there's a whole lot of difference between those two. So if it's all the same to you, I'll just go ahead and sign right now. And he said, all right. And lo and behold, uh, three months later, I'm going to, I'm driving up to the parapet to, to VMI and then parents dropped me off and here I am. The rest is history. You know, well, you know, what's interesting with that playing, you know, high school sports, you, you had some of the discipline already, you know, in your mantra, if you will. And so I've been, I've been to Lexington up, up there in uh, Virginia, in the Shenandoah. It is beautiful. The campus is awesome. It's right next to Washington and Lee. And it's, it's so historical, you know, VMI, goes back to before the civil war and mike is that correct uh, 1839 that's awesome you know and and we were up there too before we came over to see you all over in waynesboro and and my wife you know the guys were wearing their uniforms and it's pretty impressive and 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 i'm not just blowing smoke i mean i like to it's nice to know that there are things going on in our country that still mean something and those students at bmi as you well know it means something it's a long, it's American history, and it's and it's the type of school that anybody listening who would want to go there, you can you can talk to Captain Black. I'm sure he'll give you some information, but rest assured that you will get an education, and and you'll be you'll be standing tall when you walk across that stage. Mm-hmm. I had no real aspiration to go to VMI until I went there, and. I will tell you, other than the fact that the Lord's blessed me throughout my life, and that's what I want to make sure that I always give the credit for any of the achievements that I have. But as far as anything that you do of human nature, I attribute all of my success to my parents and to, to BMI. Some guys, I mean, they think all their life to go there, and that was not me. I mean, I, I, had, barely, I had never heard of the place until I walked on. I'd never seen the place until I'd walked on. And... Um, it just endeared to me and one of the more meaningful evolutions that you really see the significance of the place is VMI is to my knowledge. Now I'm not going to say that uh, uh, there's some other school that can make this claim, but VMI is to my knowledge, the only school that has a battle banner on its flag because in 1863, the entire Corps was marched up to Newmarket, Virginia, and fought in the Battle of Newmarket. And there's a very famous painting in uh, Jackson Memorial Hall there on BMI's campus of, uh, um, you know, the, the charge of the, of the cadets across the field in Newmarket, in which they captured a artillery unit uh, from Massachusetts, turned their guns on the Union Army, and actually won the day. Um, Along with that, the Corps lost, I think, a casualty rate of over 50%. Ten cadets actually died, and they're buried right there on campus. And every year on May 15th, 
you're reminded of your predecessors because we have you know the biggest parade of the year called uh, uh, New Market Day. It's always on May 15th. And uh, you, you go by and you hear the roll call of those 10 individuals. And the response is, you know, died on the field of honor. And you realize that uh, these guys set an example, regardless of which side uh, you were on or would affiliate in terms of North and South. But the fact of the matter is, these guys set the principles of which that school was going to be governed for the remainder of its, of its history. And that's something for you to live up to. And at least it, it really resonated with me that uh, this place meant something. And you had to buy into uh, the actual principles that established the school. And uh, that's what I would like to do uh, at Fishburne, to be frank with you, is I'd like to become a feeder school. But to do that, you have to uh, be able to produce people of the same metal that can withstand uh, the, the forging that occurs over at Virginia Military Institute. Well, thank you for sharing that. And again, I, I've never, you know, we read all these stories about the millennials of today and, and how we've lost this and lost that. And, and, and it's been a long time since I've heard so many yes sirs and no sirs and yes ma'ams and no ma'ams. And, and to see, you know, ninth, 10th, 11th grader seniors with such bearing was very impressive. And again, it, it really, it rankled my soul. It was nice to see young men like that. And, and uh, again, you know that task better than I do, being the superintendent. But from what I could see, you got things going on pretty good there. Pretty cool. I, I mean, I've been talking about it ever since I left. So you graduate with distinction with a degree in economics. And I know you went in through the ROTC route with the Navy officers is how you and then you got your commission. And um, tell us a little bit about that. Or before we get there. Is there any, you shared New Market Day. Is there any, is there anything that happened when you were a, a BMI cadet looking back on it that really helped to shape you as a leader? You know, people say they want to be in the military and particularly for those who go through the RTC route, they don't really know what the military is. And since you are in ranks and you can see how people handle adversity. There's a great saying. I actually heard this from a hockey coach once. A lot of people use the expression that, you know, uh, adversity builds character. And they've got that exactly backwards. Adversity reveals character. And uh, you would see that in that, you know, they would put you through your paces uh, in the rat line at BMI, which is your first year. And then every year subsequent in some manner, whether it be academic or military, whatever the case may be. And you would see ultimately who the guys you could trust and who the guys that were going to wilt. And they were always the same people. And that's one of the things that always made me realize that, hey, I want to be one of the guys that when uh, – when things go to hell in a handbasket, that they can say, hey, Black's over there, go get him. You just never want to let your buddies down because the truth of the matter is politicians and old men get us into fights. Young men take us into fights and get us out of fights. And when you're in the fight, all that matters is who's in the fight there with you. And you have to be able to trust each other. You have to be able to know that 
you know, this guy to my left and right, regardless of what he believes, what color he is, how he smells, whatever the case may be, that he's your brother in that moment and, and you can trust him. And I just, I think that's one of the things that really started to resonate with me when I was at BMI is you can be whatever color you want to be on the inside, but as long as you understand your red, white, and yellow on the outside, that's all that matters. That's a great point. And um, of course, I'm a non-combat veteran, but I, I, you know, I speak the language of the army and I do know that we do have the world's finest Navy and we have them because of the leadership and the way that the leaders are trained and, you know, to pick up on that in college and then to carry that into your 30 year career speaks volumes about how the system works. And Mm -hmm. uh, you don't win battles by having lousy leadership. You win battles by having guys that you can count on and, I appreciate that. So the 30-year career is a long career, and you are the first Top Gun Navy pilot aviator that I've ever met. So I'm sorry to disappoint you. No, no, you you haven't. But, uh, you know, tell us, you know, 30 years, tell us about your 30-year Navy career and what it's like to be in a jet that goes that fast. That's a huge scope. The um, (laughs) – Uh, well, first of all, like I said, I feel very blessed in that. Uh, and I, I think this is a tribute to the training system that the Navy had, both in flight school and through what we call the FRSs or the Fleet Replacement Squadrons, uh, and then uh, to the weapons schools, uh, which didn't really exist when I went through Top Gun. I mean, that was kind of it. But now we have a, a weapons school apparatus, which is even more refined since I've retired compared to what it was before. You know, I'm always somewhat embarrassed when people say thank you for your service because I'm, as I said, I've got two sons. Uh, they've done multiple combat tours. I know how arduous it is for them. I did one tour on the deck uh, in Afghanistan, a little bit of time in Iraq. You know how difficult it is, particularly for our um, our ground brethren in the, in the Army and the Marine Corps, how arduous that role is. And frankly, what I did for 30 years, people pay to do. Uh, so I feel very gifted, uh, not gifted, but very blessed to have had that opportunity because I love, I mean, it was like being a professional athlete for 30 years. I mean, a lot of the same feelings, a lot of the same uh, preparations, both mental and physical that uh, I did to play football in college. I did to fly a 2v2 air combat maneuvering flight against uh, some other force or to do a real world uh, mission in which you're going out and uh, providing a barrier defense against Iranian F4s off the coast of uh, uh, of their place as you're transiting some some somewhere or doing something off the coast of um, of China or off of Vietnam when we used to do operations down there we used to do some pretty Interesting operations in the Sea of Japan and the Soviets considered that their lake uh, and it would get very, very touch and go in terms of uh, the operations where they're doing things to upset us. We're doing things to upset them. And eventually, you know, somebody's going to throw a punch and you just have to be prepared that one, you don't want to be the cause of the fight, but you do want to be the end of the fight. (laughs) Uh, yes. I mean, especially during the during the Cold War, you see more when things go kinetic, 
But uh, I just get a kick, uh, and I guess I can say this now. I don't know if I get in trouble, but uh, you know, you'll hear of us. Uh, it's been in the news recently, within the last year, of uh, some American fighters intercepting Russian fighters uh, off the coast of Alaska. That's a real mission that has been ongoing. And NORAD is uh, particularly during the Cold War. And John, you're probably you know, you're old enough to recognize this. That that was a big deal. I mean, um, everybody was very worried about the homeland being attacked in some manner uh, from the former Soviet Union or a Warsaw Pact nation by some means. And Alaska, Hawaii, and the northern border of the United States was vulnerable to attack. And therefore, that's why most of NORAD was set up for the north. Not, I mean, there wasn't a lot of NORAD apparatus that was along our southern border. It was predominantly on the northern border. Anyway, in the news, you heard, uh, hey, we've had a couple of uh, bears, uh, TU-95s, that have been intercepted off the coast of Alaska. And that was big news. Well, I can remember doing missions in the late 80s that if you didn't intercept two or three aircraft per flight, then you, you were a non-hacker. <laughs> so, well, you know, and, and yet you did point that out. You know, I wasn't in the late 80s and I can remember our mission was Europe. You know, that's what we trained for in Op 4. I was at Fort Carson in Colorado, which is where NORAD had an installation there uh, at Cheyenne Mountain. That's what we trained for. We were training Soviet tactics down at Fort Irwin, and and the mission was exactly that. And, and for close quarter combat, you know, that's what we were training for and, and chemicals. But you're right. There is that going on. And, and if we didn't have well-trained personnel and leadership, some of those things could, could, could become pretty bad. I was just reading this, um, I want to say within the last two weeks, that in many cases, the military that we have now resulted from the lessons learned that we had out of Vietnam. And then we had the rebuild and, and recognize that, hey, we had to prepare ourselves for the, the latter portions of the Cold War. And, you know, the technology and the innovation that came out of really uh, some of the initiatives that Ronald Reagan instituted with uh, what was called at the time Star Wars, we're still living off of that ingenuity that came out of that. I mean, evidently, cell phones, a lot of uh, the computer-centric warfare pieces uh, and electronic warfare that exists today emanated out of the innovations that, uh, you know, a lot of guys who came out of Vietnam and the, the middle portion of the Cold War said, hey, listen, we, we, we've got to have a more organized, coordinated and joint effort if we're ever going to be able to defeat our Soviet nemesis and their Warsaw and their Warsaw Pact allies. We can't do this piecemeal. We've got to have this in a complete unified effort. And I think one of the things also that contributed to that, that really, and it, it probably had more of the element to ensure that the joint aspect of that was done was the operations that we pursued in Grenada, which uh, we had a lot of well-trained people there that uh, knew their mission, but unfortunately they did not know the mission of the people in the lanes beside them that had different taskings. And I mean, you had units in, in close combat, in close proximity to each other that had radios that uh, could not. It's not that they were not operating them properly. They could not talk to each other. 
physically. And uh, the combination of those is what really developed into the military that we that exists today. Some great points. Can you think of, um, Captain Black, can you think of one, I'm sure you can think of a lot, one or two instances in your career that stand out that make you, was an aha moment or you felt really good about? Can you think of anything? I can remember one flight, I was a brand new guy and my pilot was uh, the, the senior guy. We had, uh, I found out later that the reason I went to my first fleet squadron was because this person, so I'm going to name him. Uh, his name is Phil Filthy Granfield. He was my mentor throughout my career at several different points in my career, really cogent and salient advice. And he had the ability of saying two sentences and I knew exactly what I needed to do. Even if I didn't want to do it, I knew what it was. And so he is, uh, we throw around terms like great American, filthy Grandfield is a great American. And so uh, if he ever hears this, uh, I will always owe him a beer at any bar that I'm in. Uh, bars. So anyway, we were, we were crew paired together and we were doing a training flight in um, the Southern ranges. So it was instrumented range. It was against, um, as you mentioned, uh, our adversary squadron, and it was a, what we call a 4V unknown mission. So that means it was a division of F-14s, and you don't know how many bandits are out there. And the mission was to float. It was a what we call at the time a MIG sweep in which you go through an area, a geographical area, very fast, and your goal is to eliminate as many aircraft that are airborne as possible, and then you would allow your strike package to flow through the target in a manner in which they're not going to be jumped by these airborne aircraft. And it's before they can launch additional aircraft to compensate for their losses. So we went out there and like I said, I am too green to be green, if that makes sense. I mean, I think in the fleet for approximately two weeks and um, yeah, that's green, <laughs> but it's good. Uh, so I, I am no kidding, a, a thick white stalk, if that makes sense. And so we're going out for the flight. And for whatever reason, all of our wingmen go down. So now it is one aircraft alone and unafraid. And uh, they asked us, hey, do you even want to do this? And I remember filthy looking back at me and saying, do you think you have the fortitude to do this by yourself? I said, you know, the only way to find out is go do it. So we went out and look. And so the, uh, since the whole squadron was not flying ever, and it's an instrumented range, my entire squadron. So here I'm, I'm in the fleet finally for the, and I've been in the fleet for two weeks. So I'm going to make or break my reputation for the rest of my career on what I do in the next hour and a half uh, by myself in a flight designed for four aircraft. And I'm one. It turns out there were eight aircraft airborne and we did three runs and we killed no less than six aircraft on each run and never got killed on any. And on the last, on two of the runs, we killed seven and came back to kind of a hero's welcome. And um, it just set me up for success. And that's one of the reasons I remember it as far as real world I can tell you the most important thing I ever did combat wise was close air support. And it, it was both the greatest moments in my life, nothing. And I, 
I have a hard time saying this without getting emotional and it always makes me mad. So I'll, I'm going to try to be very stoic, but I can think based on personal experience, nothing is better to hear in an aircraft than you just done a mission and to hear some guy from the ground in which you can hear a small arms fire in the background that is hitting around their position and for them to come back and say, Hey, you just saved our lives. I can also tell you, uh, nothing's worse to hear guys screaming at you to, to do something and for you to know uh, there's nothing I can do right now. I cannot get, I cannot physically get there in time uh, to save you. So it's funny in that risk is not funny, but uh, in that respect, two sides of the same coin, uh, uh, the close air support has been both the greatest feelings I've ever had in an airplane and the worst feelings I've ever had in an airplane. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, it's touching. It's the paradox of um, of naval air command. I guess it's it's <laughs> it's deep and uh, and it means a lot. And and that the pride that you took in your command is is evident. Appreciate you sharing that story. Um, so you had this outstanding career. I know you, you tell us a little bit about your transition, sir. I know you went back and you got your master's degree and a few other qualifications. Uh, you were doing something with the University of Virginia, weren't you? That's how I finished up. So. Um... Uh, after so uh, after the uh, MAP 7 forward uh, Afghanistan OIC, I uh, went to the University of Virginia where I was in ROTC commander. So the Naval ROTC commander where you have I had both Navy and Marines. And, and you know, what a great experience. I didn't know what to expect in an academic environment. And, you know, you see on um, the news now some of the uproar and frankly, just upheaval, it almost appears in uh, academia, particularly on college campuses. And I don't know if some of that was occurring at University of Virginia, but I have to tell you, every interaction that I had with the University of Virginia, particularly as a member of the military, walking around in uniform, that school was 100% supportive. And um, I have great admiration for UVA, uh, for University of Virginia, and will be a lifelong supporter of them based off the experiences that I had and the way that they treated uh, the way they treated all of the services and in particular the, the naval services because we had the the oldest footprint on grounds at um, in Charlottesville just due to when we were instituted as a, as an organization. I mean, two of the buildings on the grounds, particularly uh, in the on the older portion of um, the post there uh, were actually built by the Navy and then essentially given to the university. So, yeah, I was there. Uh, but really going back, I mean, what had a more of an impact for me to be where I'm currently at compared to uh, I mean, in terms of transitioning over to this was what I did uh, in the Hampton Roads area of the 30 years, 26 years of my career was operational. So it's actually you know, deploying and things of that nature just worked out that way. And other than the places where you're training and I had one stint, one staff tour of significance was with NATO. And during that time frame, it was very appealing. I enjoyed it immensely, uh, but I had a lot more free time. And during that time frame, I decided to coach a high school lacrosse team. And frankly, as much as Lord blessed me throughout my military career, 
Uh, that's the most meaningful thing that I ever did in my life was I coached about 100 kids. And I can tell you, I mean, same thing. I can, I've got four or five stories that I can't tell them without being emotional. I had about 25 kids that were in a different place in life than where they were headed. And frankly, that was intoxicating. And that's why when it came time to transition to civilian life, I wanted to do something that meant something and to build people up for the future. Because I think of the greatest deficit that we have right now is in leadership and people of character being willing uh, to stand in the breach and do what needs to be done for the right reasons. Most people are like water. They seek the path of least resistance. And we need somebody. We need, we need as uh, the saying goes, we need sheepdogs to stand ready to eviscerate any threat th that is going to come after the lambs. And, um, and that, you know, that takes many different formats. That doesn't mean you have to don, you know, military uniform or police uniform or anything like that. I mean, some of that is going into the business arena and being an ethical provider or arbiter in terms of business transactions or, you know, whatever field of endeavor these guys go into is for them to provide uh, an ethical, moral, and courageous example for all those around them, because that's the only way uh, that you make people and society better. Couldn't agree with you more. You know, you mentioned your University of Virginia, you know, you're a graduate of VMI, you know, schools with outstanding records and very historical schools, I might add, but it doesn't overlook Fishburne Military School, which and and by you know the, the being the twelfth superintendent, you have made history, and it's a school that's been around since, like I said before, that was at eighteen seventy nine. Eighteen seventy nine. This is our one hundred and forty first year of operation. We are the oldest military secondary school uh, in the nation now. That's outstanding. You know, and, uh, the staff members that I met while my wife and I were up there last week in Waynesboro were so very helpful and. And so very knowledgeable of that school. And one story I'd like for you, if you can, sir, tell us about the still that that burned a building down and what honesty means to the Fishburn Military School. So did Nicholas tell you this story? He did. But I think right. the listeners need to know this because it, it's it's so important, you know, to the to the fabric of, of what you all are trying to do there. OK, I have to admit, uh, I don't know if she will want me to say this. Uh, because they are great supporters of the school. So I, I probably won't mention that. Eh, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> I don't want to get you in trouble. But, uh. yeah. but anyway, so we had a young man. This is in the 1930s. <laughs> and we had a gymnasium. So if anybody is familiar with the 1930s, there was a period of time in which sell, the selling of alcohol was illegal. And during that time frame, uh, we had a cadet here from North Carolina by the name of John Hobby and a uh, great man. And we also had a gymnasium that was behind the building, behind the school. And eventually that building burnt down. Now, you know, in most cases in that era, uh, most buildings were not made of stone, were not made of brick. They were made of wood and therefore they were very vulnerable to, to fire and uh, also, you, you look at the, the technology that was involved in, you know, fighting fires in that day, day and age. It was usually a horse driven cart with a manual pump on it. And uh, that was the extent of the firefighting that existed in those days and age. So usually if it was a bad fire, it was going to burn to the ground. And it did. So our gymnasium burned to the ground. Well, Mr. Hobby 
went through his cadetship, graduated, and did very well for himself. Uh, he's from uh, the Raleigh, North Carolina, essentially built a, a, a real uh, empire. And he did it off being virtuous, being honest, and uh, wanted to give back to Fishburne. So he came back, and I, I want to say middle 90s, uh, 2000, and essentially funded the the, pay, uh, the building of a building. And he mandated that it was not going to be Hobby Hall. It would be Hobby Hudgens Hall. So the reason for the name Hudgens is our second superintendent was a name of a gentleman by the name of Morgan Hudgens. He was a, a Virginia military graduate, 1901. In fact, his roommate was a gentleman by the name of George C. Marshall, uh, who ended up being um, General, Marshall. General Marshall of the of World War II and the Marshall Plan and, uh, you know, just a great American. But anyway, every person I've ever spoke to, and there's not very many now, that knew and uh, interacted with Colonel Hutchins, who was, like I said, the superintendent. And he came to Fishburn uh, with the extent, per, with the, the purpose of being here for about two or three years. Uh, as I said, he got here in 1901 and he left and, in 1953. So he was here for 52 years. Uh, and frankly, as a, an aside, as a VMI graduate, that's the example. I'm not going to be here for 50 years. Don't get me wrong. But uh, that's the example that I want to emulate. I want to I want to have the same impact on this school as he had, because it's obvious it was immense uh, as all the people I talked to. But anyway, uh, Miss uh, Colonel Hudgens, and this is um, replicated by numerous people that I've spoken with. He was a very quiet, or very focused, very um, driven, uh, great fortitude, great ethics, uh, but very quiet, very mild, uh, not very, uh, he, he was somewhat of an introvert and he was not demonstrative. He walks up to John Hobby and they're about six weeks from graduation and approaches Mr. Hobby and says, Mr. Hobby, and of course the, the building has just burned down, Mr. Hobby, do you have any idea of what could have been the cause of this, of the gymnasium burning down? And now Mr. Hobby has a, a huge dilemma because Mr. Hobby knows we have a, we adhere to the VMI honor code, which I'm sure is probably the same as all the other uh, service academies and military schools. Uh, I would not lie to you or steal or tolerate anyone who does. Mr. Hobby knows that uh, he did have something to do with that building build, uh, burning down because he had several stills in the bottom of that building uh, that was being produced for alcohol to counter the effects of prohibition in the city of Waynesboro that he was. <laughs> so he knows, yep, his stills probably caused it. Now, the dilemma is this. If he says, Yes, I did have something to do with it. He's going to be kicked out because he just started a fire and caused great destruction on the campus. By the same token, if he lies with the honor code being what it is, he knows that he could be kicked out of the school for, for lying. And so he had about a, 
And I actually spoke, like said to his one of his daughters and says, is this true that he thought this way? He goes, what he always told us. He said, so I had about five seconds to make the decision of, am I going to get kicked out for telling them that I'm the cause of the fire or lie and be kicked out because I'm a liar? And he said, he thought to himself, honesty is the best policy. So, and he goes, I'm not going to admit that I did this, but I'm just going to answer his question. So his answer to Colonel Hutchins' question is, yes, sir, I do know what caused this building to burn down. And Mr. Hutchins then, or Colonel Hutchins then looked at him and he goes, well, to that hobby, honesty is the best policy. He turned around and walked away. <laughs> and uh, hobby went on to uh, graduate and, and have what a great career. Went on to great things. So it's a pretty interesting story. That, and it really shows that honesty is the best policy. And that's one of the things we try to teach the cadets here. I mean, you have to convince them because uh, I can tell you, John, I mean, I, I, I presume pretty vigorously that, you know, when we were growing up as somebody, when you were 14, when somebody came up to you and said, hey, you need to live an honorable life. We all knew what that meant. We all knew what that meant. I can tell you in 2019, based off the where society is, that um, when you tell a 14 year old today, hey, you need to live an honorable life, that he might not have a good understanding of that. So we're, we're trying to take them down to brass tacks. Here's what honor is and can provide them a compelling and convincing argument of why that's the best way to live their lives. That's a great viewpoint because, you know, in today's society, you know, we, we hear about it, we see it, this lack of responsibility and nobody takes, you know, we pretty much can do whatever we want. We don't have to worry about the consequences. Well, I can assure the listeners what I saw was there are consequences. In fact, you're, you're dealing with, a, with something up there, but, but there, and, and, you're, and you're instilling in these young men the values that, that will lead them throughout their lives and their careers. Do you have any advice or would, what would you like the civilian world to know about our combat veterans and about our veterans in general? What would you like them to know? For, for veterans in particular, uh, and this is just, I mean, I, we talked about me flying earlier. And I think, and this applies to every service, you know, you put the details in, but I get a kick out of, you know, we talk about millennials now, it used to be Gen Xers. And, you know, to a certain extent, it was probably the baby boomers when they were going through their, you know, Vietnam, the Cold War. Uh, but uh, this is an, this is honest truth, and, and I go through this story to um, kind of provide the credentials and the backdrop for the statement that I'm going to make. But as I loved flying, I loved flying even more from the carrier during the daytime. Now at night, I didn't like it. Anybody who tells you that they enjoy flying doing carrier ops at night is a liar outright liar. <laughs> uh, it's pretty scary at night. In the daytime, it's awesome. I mean, there are very few things that I, I mean, I, I enjoyed the combat mission aspect, you know, fighter missions, uh, dropping bombs, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, coming into the ship in a daytime environment in which uh, the weather's clear 
and you're doing what we call zip lip or, or MCON operations, which there's no talking. I mean, you'll have an entire 15 plane launch followed by a 14 plane recovery and never a word is said. And it's absolutely amazing. But as much as I enjoyed all that, what really inspired me and I love more than anything was watching my sailors and Marines on the flight deck. Uh, because it is organized chaos. Arguably, the most, other than in a firefight, it's the most dangerous place in the world. I mean, routinely, you would say, in fact, when I first started in, in the late 80s, every time the ship pulled away from the pier, the carrier, every time we pulled away from the pier, not deployment, when we pulled away from the pier, there was somebody that didn't come back. That's how dangerous it was now. And now, virtually, that that never occurs. I mean, very rarely do they have any type of uh, casualty in, in today's day and age. But that's just a testament to how good those guys are. And, you know, to, I mean, to give the last example of what I'm talking about in terms and, and all of the guys doing this now, they're all millennials. So when people say, oh, the millennials don't know how to do things, they've never seen millennials in those moments of adversity, because some of the millennials that I've seen in those situations have performed flawlessly right before you launch off a carrier. So they do a full check. They hook it. Uh, they hook the aircraft up to the shuttle. Or at least they did. They, they did when I was there. And I know the Ford has a different apparatus, so I don't know what they do there. But um, uh, it hooks in, you know, the, the launch bar hooks into the shuttle of the, of the catapult. And uh, they take tension on that thing. So you got a 72,000 pound aircraft that's getting ready to launch. So you can imagine how much force is on that shuttle. And the aircraft goes to full power. Depending on its weight, it could be in um, afterburner. And the last thing that they do before they release that, they've got to make sure that that launch bar is seated in the shuttle. And you have an 18, 19, 20-year-old kid, male or female, that with that aircraft at full power and the shuttle at full tension, puts his head down in there, his head in front of the main mount. So if anything happens wrong at that moment, he's dead or she's dead and will be cut in half and we will not find, I mean, the fish will be, have eaten their remains before we will probably be able to recover. That's how bad they will be tore up. And for all of that, they get a hundred dollars a month. So the thing I would tell anybody about a veteran, the reason I relay that story is the caliber of person. And, you know, I'm sure somebody from the air force can convey situations in which it's just as meaningful, Army, Air, uh, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, Merchant Marine, each one of them has an iteration of what I just said. I mean, you can change the details, but the fact of the matter is, these people have been required to meet a standard, achieve an expectation, and to maintain that, and to be able to look at the people surrounding them and say, you can trust me to always do this. That's the caliber person that most of the veterans that I've ever met, that's what they live up to. And they don't have to tell you that they're going to do that because uh, as you well know, if I have to tell you that I'm good, I'm not. I would think for anybody that owns or operates a business or a factory 
or has some economic endeavor that the people that I would want are people that have proven themselves in a very difficult and demanding institution. And I got to believe that the United States military qualifies in all three of those in spades. Couldn't agree with you more on that one either, sir. You know, you pointed out in a way that it, that was eloquent and quite succinct and uh, lets people know that those jobs are very dangerous. And thank you for pointing out the millennials and the younger generation, because now you're making me look at them in a different light. And um, I've never been on the uh, the deck of an aircraft carrier, but what I have seen and what I do know is it is probably the world's most dangerous place. And those people that do that deserve that kind of accolade and recognition. Let me ask you this. So let's just say you're a young person, or let's just say you've done your tour of duty. You're a, a male or a female, and you get out from your, your term of service, and you're in a real bad place. You know, we hear so much about uh, concussive syndrome and post-traumatic stress and TBIs. What would your message be, Captain Black, to that young woman or young man that, that might be struggling right now? It's kind, of, it's kind of the same message that uh, I've given in, in other instances. Uh, if you ever watch a safari m- movie or documentary, I'm going to answer that with a rhetorical question to you, John. So I want you to think back to the days of, what was that show? It was a safari show. I remember that show. So I forget the guy's name, but he always had the cheetah petting the cheetah or something like that. But you'd watch on the plane, the the plains of the Serengeti, and there's some big herd of animals out there, and there's a lion or a cheetah, or the animal that always got devoured was the animal that was away from the herd by itself and in some degree of need. And what I would say, I mean, that's true of anything. Whenever you get away from your support base and you you have some degree of need, then that's the time to seek help. First of all, you've got to let people know that you need help and you need to move towards them because if you move towards them and, and essentially highlight the fact that you're in need and I've seen this on those same shows. You'd see wildebeest that they would run to the animal in need, particularly once it started crying out. It's the same concept for us. Is if you you are the only person that really knows that you're you're hurting, or at least you'll be the first to recognize it. I, I think, and therefore, it's incumbent upon that person to to then reach out. And if you're in the vicinity of one of your shipmates uh, or battle buddies uh, that uh, you recognize, hey, they, they need something. They, they need somebody to come alongside. Then one, that's what you need to do. And uh, like I said, the individual that needs the assistance, they need to make that known to them uh, because we are all stronger together than trying to take on some of uh, the ramifications of difficult situations by ourselves. Um, you know, what is it? Uh, there was a saying that Tecumseh to to utilized, a twig is weak, but a bundle of twigs is strong. And uh, that's the way we all need to live our lives. And uh, it's interesting to see, you know, the strengthening that you've seen with the Veterans Administration. It seems like uh, things are getting better there, but still there's a lot of room for improvement. 
uh, on the um, on the gov- government side. But there's a lot of things that we as individuals, one, we need to seek that help. And then two, if we if we see a shipmate or a battle buddy that, uh, hey, you need some help. You know, who's the person that really loves someone, someone that shields or covers for somebody that's having a hard time or the person that confronts them and says, shipmate, you need to have help. And I'm taking it there right now. I would tell you the, the latter person loves them much more than the former. Definitely some great advice and, and words of wisdom. Um, so stay with the herd. You know, if you're out there and you're listening and you're hurting and, you know, call your battle buddy you know, call your, your brothers and sisters that you served with or somebody that you know at the VA and get the help you need. And and I can say firsthand that you're not weak if you do so. Um, you're actually pretty strong. And thank you for that, sir. Let me ask, let me ask you this. What does freedom mean to you, sir? I think of the freedom that we've experienced in the United States is it's almost like oxygen. I don't know. Uh, I, I find that s- synonymous with life. I go back to my relationship with Christ. I mean, I've accepted Christ as my Savior. That's an important thing for me. And um, I believe that is even a greater essence of freedom because I know that uh, my sins are covered. But in terms of a, as a human being, you know, being able to be the, the to be able to take responsibility for my own actions and be able to determine my own future or at least set the conditions for it. I truly am, feel like that's one of the greatest things that is a blessing to be an American. Uh, we have no guarantee of what the outcomes are going to be but we have no limitations on what the outcomes are going to be. And in many cases, I mean, uh, in fact, I was just telling a cadet today, it's amazing how lucky I am, the harder I work. And I think that's something that people need to understand is you, the freedom that we have in this country is you can be anything that you want to be. As long as you're willing to put the sweat equity into it to become that. And frankly, uh, I mean, I've, Again, been very blessed to, to travel throughout the world. And I can tell you, in most of the world, that's not the case. That is not the case. You are going to be limited by, you know, whatever caste system that you were born into or whatever topography that you grew up with. I mean, it was amazing to me in some of the places, particularly such as Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, in the Middle East. I mean, those people are living in biblical times. I mean, no kid, biblical times. I mean, we would fly over uh, an area, no rivers, no roads, no man-made structures other than, or no, man, no man-made material. I mean, those structures were made by man, but it was, you know, mud huts and things of that nature. And there is nothing else around there for hundreds of miles. And it's hard for your average American who, you know, cannot appreciate poverty of that nature and then not to appreciate the freedoms that, that we have from a political standpoint, from a, an agricultural standpoint. I mean, let's face it. I mean, those those folks have a hard time surviving just from the food that they're capable of eating, whereas 
no American should ever go hungry because there's you know a multitude of food out there. Uh, and then from a uh, educational or, or spiritual aspect, I mean, we have just been so blessed in terms of what is provided to us that and that we also have the ability to reach out and attain any aspect of one of those different categories to make our lives what it is that we want to do. I don't know that that's ever existed in the annals of time. And I don't know that um, the vast majority of our population understands or appreciates that that's the blessing that they, they possess. I don't know if I said that very well. But. No, 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 you absolutely did. You know, the, and it points out something that gives me a new, a new, uh, a new viewpoint on it that, you know, having been in the military and people that have served overseas and in some of those environments, they do have that understanding. And I, you know, we led guided trips to the Andes for 15 years. And it was amazing to me how many of the team members that we went down with literally thought that the rest of the world lived like we did here in the States. But the minute they got to a place like Peru or Bolivia, they saw firsthand the poverty that you just described. And I'd have to agree with you, sir. The most Americans have absolutely no idea how lucky and how fortunate and how blessed you mentioned Jesus Christ as your savior and mine too, how blessed we are to, to have the things that we have here in America. Right. You know, incredible. I mean, and and never in the annals of history, as you so well put, has there ever been a country like this. And despite what the pundits may say, or the proverbial outlets, this is still the greatest country in the world. And it will always be as long as we have the forces we have, and people like you, superintendents of military schools uh, in America, that instill the same values that this country was founded on. And it's very impressive and it's very enlightening. Let me ask you this, sir. Do you have a personal maxim or a mantra or a motto? Maybe it's your own. Maybe it's somebody else that you admire. What, what, what drives you every day? What, what motivates you? I want to glorify the Lord. First of all, I mean, um, that's probably the biggest thing that motivates me as far as being the superintendent of Fishburne Military School. It's it's interesting for your listeners. I wonder if they can uh, uh, appreciate this. So being in the military, you have a lot of mission statements that you go through. And my opinion of mission statements was always they were too long, too vague. They didn't really say anything and nobody read them. So they were, for the most part, worthless. Um, Yeah. In fact, I, I, I admitted this to somebody the other day, and I had mission statements that I had signature on that I never read because it was just like, okay, I'll just whatever that was good enough for the last guy, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and echo that. But uh, anyway, when I got ready to prepare for the interview here, I read through Professor James. Uh, so the guy who started school here is James A. Fishburne. And I read through his mission statement, which is three sentences long, actually three lines long. And I'm like, holy mackerel. In 1879, this guy had it. I mean, just quick, succinct, right to the point. And I've boiled that statement down into uh, one sentence or seven words in it. And this is what I try to achieve. I try to contribute to this every day. So our mission at Fishburne Military School is to forge educated, honorable young men of courage. And what that means is forging. First of all, I choose that word specifically because forging is you apply heat and stress 
to an object to bend it into something that is useful. And um, one of the things I tell the candidates that are contemplating coming here, you got to be good metal because if you're a daisy, you're going to evaporate uh, in this system. So if you can't handle it, don't come because it's not easy and we don't apologize for that. Uh, we say that, that one of our mantras is, hey, leadership for life, but to be frank, to get to the point where you're going to be a leader, you got to be a man. So it's also boys to men. Secondly, educated. And I think a lot of people put too much emphasis on the academics or the scholastic aspect of that. And really, if, if you think of the stool, there's three legs, body, mind, and spirit. And all three have to be equally strong. If they aren't, you're going to develop a wobble and eventually you're going to break. Uh, you have to be honorable. We talked about that before. People have to be able to trust you. I mean, trust is the uh, the glue that holds us all together. And uh, for you to be connected with other people, you have to be honorable. And finally, and, and arguably most importantly, you have to be courageous in that, uh, as I mentioned before, you know, people don't do the right, people don't do the right thing because they don't know what it is. People don't do the right thing because people are, like I said, like water. They seek the path of least resistance and therefore doing the right thing is usually hard. We want to teach our young men to do the right thing for the right reason at the right time, every time. And uh, that's, it takes courage to do the right thing when everybody's watching. And that's what we want our guys to do. So that, that little saying, forge educated, honorable young men of courage, I try to make sure everything I do contributes to the fulfillment of every one of those words every day. And I've seen firsthand for the short time I was on campus there in Waynesboro uh, that it's definitely it's taking place. How can anybody listening out there, sir, find out more information about First Fishburne Military School? Uh, how can they reach you or members of your staff if they're interested in learning more about that school? Uh, I would say probably the best avenue to go to would be our website, which is www.fishburn. And Fishburn is spelled uh, Foxtrot India Sierra Hotel, Bravo Uniform, Romeo November Echo.org. So www.fishburn.org. And go through our website and you can see the pictures. Uh, uh, we've got. Um, uh, some galleries that we, we're trying to do better there. We have a Facebook page. So most of the, the normal social media, but like I said, I would say the fish, uh, the, the uh, website is probably the best source. And uh, it has our, all of our contact information on there. And uh, one of the, one of the things that I think is important is we need to be accessible. So if somebody has questions, uh, you can leave a, uh, request for information, or you can call us. Uh, and we've even established a chat mechanism on the website now that uh, there should be somebody uh, during business hours. Uh, I don't have people working 24 seven, you know, during business hours, if you, uh, you would prefer to have that separation and go through a, a chat mechanism, then that's available as well. So I, I would say that's the best way to, to go through it. Well, thank you for that information, sir. You know, I'm glad we got this interview. Yes, sir. I am too. Humbled and honored to have you on the show. And um, we've been talking with Captain Mark Black, the 12th superintendent of the Fishburn Military Academy in Waynesboro, Virginia. He's a 30-year Navy veteran, done a lot of outstanding things for America and for American youth coming along. And 
and even the college kids too. And just want to say I'm um, honored to have you here, sir. And I wish you continued success. And uh, I know I'm going to see you again and uh, Godspeed to your sons, wherever they are. I know one of them was coming back. And one of them told me, yeah. Well, good for that. And we're glad he's safe. And I know your wife is too. And I just want to commend you on an outstanding career, outstanding job. And I look forward to our next meeting, sir. Thank you very much, John. I, I welcome anytime you just let us know and we'll, we'll have a place for you. In fact, I think a bunch of the cadets wanted to drive that Jeep up the hill. <laughs> we could have done that too. You know, those guys I trust, some other guys I don't know. You know, you guys are, and I, and I don't say it lightly, you know, I really mean it comes from my heart. What I witnessed there at the Fishburne Military School just last week, and my wife was very impressed. And I got to tell you, I don't get excited about too many things other than America, but you see here on my wall behind me, they, the listeners can't see it, but the year before my dad passed away and he served 28 years as an army officer, he bought me this uh, Mort Kunstler painting and it's Stonewall Jackson with his wife oh, Okay, uh, right before the Chancellorsville engagement. You know, of right. course it was friendly fire that took him out, but that whole area up there is embedded in my soul. And I just know that with guys like you at the helm, teaching those young men and I know that we're still in good hands. So if you're out there, you're worried about America. There are places in America that great things are still taking place. And one of them is there at the Fishburne Military School. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Like I said, come back and see us anytime. You know I will. Be careful what you wish for, sir. That's Roger that. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you. You gotta light them up before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken. Yeah.